Welcome to the sixth episode of our series, The AE War Report. This is the sixth episode on the Russo-Ukrainian War. This episode, we are joined by Northern Provisions as well, and this is sort of our uh, year anniversary special episode, I guess you could say. This podcast, along with all of our other podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions, LLC. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs art and culture take a look at the journal's bulletin from the borderlands a bi-monthly foreign affairs publication for multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal also check out the freelancers that's a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters find them on twitter at cbt freelancers Instagram at Freelancers Blog and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash analyze educate, or you could also support us on ko-fi.com. That is ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. And before we get going, uh, this is actually going to be a multi-part, uh, I guess, year anniversary special me and northern provisions had a lot to talk about and we weren't able to get to it all today so we will be back with the second part pretty soon after this one comes out and uh yeah so just be on the lookout for that this is not uh not the complete special so keep that in mind and we will head into the episode All right, everyone, I'm here with Northern Provisions again, and we are here for the sixth episode of our war report on the Russo-Ukrainian war. It's been a year since the invasion began. Over 8 million Ukrainians have fled the country as refugees at one point or another, but more than 4.5 million of them have returned home, according to the UN. Countries that still currently have high numbers of refugees include uh, Russia with 2.8 million. Now, the State Department says that Roughly 900,000 of those were sent to Russia by force. We have Poland with 1.5 million, Germany with 1 million, and many other countries, excuse me, have also received refugees, including the United States and a lot of other places in Europe. But the crisis persists nonetheless. Now, going into losses, the UN has acknowledged at least 7,200 civilian deaths, although the true toll is thought to be much larger maybe a a very long time before we know. Going into Russia, the government has acknowledged at least 5,900 deaths among Russian servicemen. Uh, However, the BBC has identified at least 1,500 Russians killed in action by name. The U.S. and the U.K. estimates uh, somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 killed and wounded. Ukraine claims it's killed 146,000 killed, not wounded, just killed. My God. Yeah. Uh, which there's no way, by the way, but different story. No. Going into Ukraine, their government has acknowledged at least 13,000 killed. Obviously, that number is a lot higher. But Russia claims it's killed over 61,000 Ukraine Ukrainian personnel on 50,000 have been wounded. The U.S. government estimates that Ukraine has taken roughly similar amounts of casualties as Russia, probably between 100 and 200,000. Pretty big. Uh, pretty big range in numbers but you know again it may be a while before we actually know now for equipment losses uh 
they've had a lot. And it's been a while since I've done one of these. I think the last one I did was in June or July. So these numbers have, you know, increased exponentially. But Russia's taken at least uh, 9,400 equipment losses. That's over 1,700 tanks, 3,200 uh, armored vehicles. That's armored fighting vehicles, infantry fighting vehicles, and APCs, 74 fixed-wing aircraft, 78 helicopters, over 190 UAVs, and 12 ships. Uh, Ukraine has taken at least 3,000 equipment losses. That's 468 tanks, uh, about 800 armored vehicles, 59 fixed-wing aircraft, 30 helicopters, 83 UAVs, and 25 ships. And obviously, these losses are uh, pretty big for both sides, but these are you know, only what we can visually confirm. The true number is probably a lot higher. And again, we won't know that for a while either. So Northern, if you want, I think we could get uh, into the phases of the war. We really have the lead up to the war, which we're going to talk about briefly, but it's a pretty big subject. You know, if we wanted to do a whole episode dedicated to that, we could actually probably do a few episodes. Um, yeah, we're not going to do that here today because that would take forever. Absolutely not. Yeah, a lot has happened in uh, the two days of two to three days special military operation. They crammed a lot in a very short amount of time. Um, that actually, now that I think about it, it wasn't even the Russians that made that comment, right? Wasn't it like the the DOD that said the Russians were going to take Kiev in three days? Yeah, I want to say it was uh, Mark Milley, I think. Yeah, yeah, they were, yeah, our, our, um, pretty sure yeah i don't even remember the russian saying it was us we were i guess we were about as accurate with that as we were with afghanistan um <clears throat> yeah man the let's do phases let's let's try to hit as much as we can without i guess coming off across as bread pudding to these people um there's a lot to unpack that's happened in just the year amount of time yeah there is and so and again, feel free to stop me whenever you want, and we could sort of flush things out. But you really have the the prelude to the invasion, and then after the invasion, you have four phases. We're you know currently in the fourth right now, and so with the prelude, obviously this war has been going on for nine years at this point. This war has roots going all the way back to the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. And it's not unique in that either. There have been many armed conflicts that have erupted since and because of the collapse of the USSR. And there will be more in the future. You know, it's just a matter of time. Multiple revolutions in Ukraine play a big role in the start of the war, especially the Euromaidan in 2013 and the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. After that, we have widespread unrest in Ukraine between pro-Europeans and pro-Russians and this is how you get the establishment of the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics and the war in the Donbass. Little known fact, you also get the Kharkov People's Republic in Kharkiv or Kharkov, whatever you want to call it. But that lasted, I think, like a day or two. So that's why nobody mentions it. You also have the yeah, there was, um Sorry to cut you off, man, but uh, oh, correct me if I'm wrong. That that happened like right post-Revolution days, right? And there was, um, there was a lot of like actual political fighting a lot of people died i think or at least like maybe a dozen people died yeah it in between and right after these two revolutions in 2013 and 2014 you get a lot of um i don't know if i want to say ethnic tensions but there's a, a lot of tension between 
pro-European Ukrainians and pro-Russian Ukrainians, whether that's, you know, ethnic Russians living in Ukraine or uh, ethnic Ukrainians that are Russian speaking, you know, there's a lot of both in the country. And there is a lot of uh, a lot of violence and unrest that's going on and violence committed on both sides. I want to say you have probably about 50 people die just in the unrest alone. And that's before you even get the war in the Donbass. But you have a lot of violence. I know in Odessa, there's a pretty big event there where I think some pro-Russians were trapped inside some sort of building and basically burnt to death. And then you had a lot of unrest, especially in the East, Donetsk, uh, Luhansk, and Kharkiv, and uh, a lot of other places in the South. But this is this is a pretty big thing that was going on for a while, and that's really what gets us into this war. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah there's a lot of things people don't know about that happened. PBS did a great documentary on it um, back in the day, right after the 2014 revolution they cover a lot of that like odessa was a big kind of i guess you would say russian sympathizer area back then um obviously a lot of that changed when russia like invaded in the whole ukraine but it was definitely very important dynamics at the time it kind of set the stage yeah and that's always kind of been part of the conversation really for the past nine years is you have these areas, especially in the south, in the east, areas that, you know, border the Black Sea. Um, you also have Crimea, right? And then you have the areas that border Russia, and it's a lot of Russian speakers. I think ma- majority Russian speakers, at least prior to um, prior to probably 2015, and maybe, maybe even all the way up into the invasion in 2022, because a lot of Ukrainians that are Russian speaking have switched to the Ukrainian language because of the invasion, right, to show their dissatisfaction. But um, yeah, that is that is a big part of the conversation is you have a lot of Ukrainians that feel closer to Russia than they do the government in Kyiv, and certainly closer to Russia than they do to Europe. Yeah. Yeah, but I think a lot of that changed now. I think like Russia going into this probably overestimated the loyalty in some of these areas and thought that there really wasn't going to be that much resistance. Um, And I think that their initial invasion really kind of threw, pushed a lot of people that were somewhat politically or ideologically sympathizing with them, just pushed them to embrace Ukraine, like you said, and be like, okay, well, you cross a line. Yeah, um, you know, there was some conversation before the invasion that once, you know, Russian forces go into these places, especially in the east, you know, people are going to be waving Russian flags, right? And basically praising, you know, their so-called liberation. Um, and I, I mean, you did see a little bit of that. There there certainly are still pro-Russians in these in these areas in Ukraine. You had a decent amount of collaborators, but um, you did not see the amount of support for Russian forces that many people, including myself, thought thought that um, you would. Yep, <clears throat> there's a. I think they're in for a long road. Yeah, and I mean, even going back to your point, I mean, you you definitely saw that Russia did not expect 
this sort of fight on their hands, you know, in terms of severity when they first invaded. I mean, they they were pretty laxed, all things considered. I mean, when they went up against Ukrainian forces, right, they fought as you would expect them to. But, you know, look, looking back in uh, in the Marine Corps, you know, me and you are both Marine infantrymen. And when I was a boot, at least I got talked to about, you know, being a hard target or a soft target. Right. And when you're going in an area where you don't really know the the threat level, you're not going up against a force, but you could get like ambushed at any second or, you know, maybe someone comes around a corner with an AK or whatever. You want to look like a hard target. Right. You want to look like you're ready for a fight. You're prepared. You know what you're doing. And that isn't something we saw with the Russians. They were soft targets in areas where they weren't actively engaged. I mean, they're holding their rifles with one hand. They're kind of just walking around willy-nilly. They're all bunched up. Um, they're, like, interacting with Ukrainian civilians like they didn't just invade the country. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they got a wake-up call. Yeah. <laughs> they got more than a wake-up call. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, um, man, one of the, I remember... Uh, are we going too off track, by the way? I, I'm just no, no, it. we're fine. I remember when, um, <clears throat> I think it was uh, like out of Urpin, when they had that convoy that got ambushed, and they just got hucked up. Because um, some of the videos came out. I think that was one of the, there's a picture that started making its round. It was, um, it was a Ukrainian soldier. I think like an SBU guy was over a Russian body. And you kind of see like brain matter out of the corner of the, the picture, but it was, it was blurred enough. But yeah, this convoy essentially just went down the wrong street. And um I, I don't I don't know if they were just, you know, they were like you said, they were just lax, they were comfortable, they didn't really expect this kind of resistance, but that whole column got like ambushed um and and chopped up pretty good. And I, I don't know. This there's a lot there's a lot of things behind it that I just don't think they really expected the kind of fighting that they ended up getting and still have, you know. Yeah, um, you know, and I think I'm I might even know which convoy you're talking about, but it is something something that we saw a lot in the early days, specifically in uh Kiev Oblast, you know, areas around the capital city, um, Russian supply convoys. Uh, and, you know, infantry columns were getting ambushed left and right. I mean, people were sneaking behind supply convoys with trucks and blowing them up or capturing them. I, it happened all the time. And if we're thinking about the right convoy, there was um, this column of VDV vehicles. That's uh, Russian Airborne Forces. I want to say they were like 10 vehicles deep and they have they have armored vehicles, but they're very like the armor is very light. It's it's not something you want to attack a strong point with, right? You you don't want to go up against RPGs or something like that with the type of vehicles they have. I can't remember the name of it, but these guys were going single file down a road and they got ambushed by Ukrainian special forces, and they had to have been in a, at least an entire platoon that was wiped out. Yeah, in, in like the blink of an eye. And, and that kind of thing was common in these first days. Yeah, that and confusion, man. You remember all those videos that would come out of like Russian and Ukrainian armor vehicles just flying past each other on a road? And then they're just like, wait a minute. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. And then you see, 
Russian and Ukrainian forces like fighting each other vehicle to vehicle while civilians are driving by like it's nothing people are walking on the streets and they might kind of like speed walk out of the way but it's insane I, I saw a video from I want to say the second day of the invasion today I'd never seen it before and there is a Ukrainian uh infantry mobility vehicle you know it's got the machine gun mounted on the turret and it's firing on a Russian APC um just like in the middle of the street and i mean there's cars driving by like like it's nothing and this machine gun is just like laying into this armored vehicle it's not doing anything because it's armored but they're just duking it out in the street and i mean there's this lady on the side walking with her shopping bags and she's kind of like hurrying up a little bit but that's it (laughs) that's it and this kind of thing was common yeah it's like chicago Oh my God, I'm t- I'm gonna get off topic for a little bit, but man, when I was, oh God, when was this? 2017 or maybe 2018? I think I was at ITX, um, and I was a road guard for a little bit, and we had this dude in charge of us. He was a Motor T lieutenant from a uh, third, third regiment, nice. and. This guy was something else, man. He comes into us like the first day we're all there. It's like a whole platoon of us. He comes into the um to the case band we were in, and he's like, Okay, uh gentlemen, how many of you have been in the sandbox? <laughs> like, Ooh, all right, whatever, right? So, so some people raise their hands and he's like, uh, well, I've never been, but I grew up on the south side of Chicago, kind of like Fallujah. <laughs> so that's who I am. <laughs> I swear to God, I can't make it up. Good old Chirac. Just like Fallujah. I will never forget that until I die. Was he like straight out of the schoolhouse? Like straight out of TBS or something? Uh, no, I think he did. Um, Like he did a deployment to Australia. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Well, he's ready to go, man. It's combat season. Yeah, that was kind of a goober. But getting back on track, so we're talking about the prelude again, and you have the establishments of these people's republics, right? The pro-Russian people's republics. And then you also have the invasion in the annexation of Crimea in, uh, I want to say February 2014, I think. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, and obviously that was... uh, it's a very big event, right? Because it wasn't pro-Russian separatists. It was Russian forces moving into Crimea. And they basically took the place without fight. I think a handful of people died throughout that whole thing. But yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember those one without um, a fight. Those helos were like that, that was a, those are big videos that were just like Russian helos. Essentially like storming Crimea. And um a lot of the world was like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, and I mean, they just got, you know, infantry infantry convoys, like, in the back of transport trucks, just like we would sit in the back of seven tons, and they just roll through Crimea like it's nothing, like, unopposed. They surround yeah. military bases, the Ukrainians inside are kind of like, what What do we do? And yeah. eventually they'd surrender, some of them would switch sides, some of them, you know, might be detained a little bit, but that was it. Yeah, that was, there's a lot of it was very confusing. I, I remember um, they were interviewing 
like I don't know who it was. Someone was interviewing, I guess, like the local, I don't know, like the local Ukrainian militia there or whatever. And they weren't doing anything. They're just kind of like staring at the Russian soldiers. And it was like this weird, like you, you it was kind of, I think, people's first, like their first initial contact with realizing that there are people in Ukraine somewhere that like are okay with Russians taking their land um, or being absorbed, if you will. Um, yeah. It yeah. was really wild to see. Definitely. And I mean, this is also coming at a time when the central <laughs> government is pretty weak. You know, they've dealt with these uh, revolutions and yeah, they're just incredibly weak. They don't have a lot of power and they can't really defend their territory, even if they wanted to. And even on that point, going back to the Donbass, I mean, that's that's when this war really becomes very fluid. And at, at the beginning, when, again, central government's very weak and not a lot of people really know how to respond to not only Russian forces in Crimea, but heavily armed separatists taking over entire regions. I mean, the separatists are rolling over Ukrainian forces at this point in the very beginning of the war. Um, yeah. You know, it was it was laughable, but eventually the Ukrainian military gets back on their feet. You also have volunteer battalions, which are, you know, basically militiamen, uh, you know, Azov battalion. That's a really infamous one. And then you have plenty of others and they're really the ones that hold the line and basically buy enough time for the Ukrainian military to get back on their feet. And then you see, you know, territory changing hands back and forth in 2014, early 2015. Yeah. And there was, I think that's when, you know, people started calling uh, a lot of these like Russian soldiers, like little green men, because they denied, Russia denied that there was any sort of actual Russian military presence in Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, there are these soldiers running around wearing, I don't know what the actual technical term is for their uniform, but wearing like the Russian camo. They just didn't have any unit markings or anything like that. So everyone just kept cut like nicknaming them little green men because they were all over Donbass and Crimea and these other areas where there was fighting going on. But, you know, there wasn't any unit patches to kind of designate them, prove that they were Russian. Yeah, yeah. And the, the term little green men first comes into use in Crimea, right, because Russia is never officially admitted to invading Crimea. They basically say these little green men who were, you know, pro-Russian Ukrainians or Russian volunteers. I think, you know, at one point they even said some of these guys came from like biker gangs, right? They yeah. basically somehow get incredibly organized with all this equipment, storm Crimea, and that basically gives Russia the chance to hold this referendum which is the pretext for them annexing Crimea. That's like the official narrative is they never actually invaded right. um, militarily. It was all volunteers. And of course that's BS, but, you know, going on your point, you also have little green men in the Donbass. And at this time, uh, the LDNR forces, that's Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. If you're LDNR, that's what it, that's the acronym used for that. They start calling themselves Nova Russia, New Russia. So it's very clear. Um, their state of mind 
But once they start getting pushed back from territories, they swept over pretty quickly in 2014. That's when you actually have full on Russian military units enter the fray. And at this point, Ukrainian and Russian units are going at it in a conventional war. Now, again, Russia's never acknowledged that it actually sent its military into Ukraine. Again, volunteers are pro-Russian Ukrainians. That's all they've admitted to. But I mean, this was legit. You could maybe you couldn't identify these guys by patches, but I mean, there were full-on units, naval infantry brigades, the VDV, motorized rifle battalions, and yeah. I know at least in one case that I could remember from all the way back then, you had these three friends that grew up together in Russia, right? And they joined the military, all end up in the same unit. And they all end up getting killed in Ukraine. But before they get killed, they're posting pictures and videos on uh, VK, that's the Russian version of Facebook, that are geolocated in Ukraine. Damn. And yep. that happened that happened a lot. It wasn't just that case. It's just one that I, I specifically remember all the way back from 2014. But it's pretty obvious to, to everybody that Russia and Ukraine were legitimately duking it out in the Donbass all the way back in 2013. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. They, I mean, they did pretty well. They tried to do a good job of covering it up. And I'm like, I have something pulled up on it right now. Right, It says... Uh, <clears throat> Russian media referred to them, I'm um, talking about the little green men, with a euphemism, quote-unquote, polite people, due to their well-mannered behavior, as they kept to themselves and mostly made no effort to interfere with civilian life. So, <laughs> these guys, they, they really just tried to play it off as like, yeah, nobody knows who these guys are, you know, just a bunch of dudes being bros, wearing them, um, you know, hanging out. God knows what, smoking his cheese together, just hanging out the, you know, local congressional office in Crimea. Yeah, and I mean, these guys were, these guys were getting awards, you know, yeah. from, from their actions during the fighting. I mean, just like, just like, you know, you would if you were in the, I mean, any military, right, and you go on deployment. Um. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious that this was this was a legitimate conventional war all the way back then and this fighting is very heavy it's very fluid and it it goes all the way until uh, the minsk 2 agreement that brings a ceasefire now minsk 1 fell apart pretty quickly i mean maybe within a matter of weeks maybe a month if i remember correctly but it didn't last long so that's how you get the second agreement that brings a ceasefire that is broken pretty much daily from the start by both sides but it doesn't bring this like fluid uh fighting in which the front line is moving all the time it we don't we don't see that um really until the invasion last year well <clears throat> and then this i mean this you know this fighting continued for years um i, I don't know kind of how you saw it from your perspective but after 2014, 2015, I feel like it really just kind of dropped off. Um, people just kind of like stopped talking about it. It wasn't really, at least from what I remember, they just kind of stopped talking about it and it didn't really pick back up until uh, I think it was 
2020 there was kind of like a buildup at the border and everyone thought this is it and then like nothing happened and then uh obviously again you know the buildup in 2021 um like november december time frame and that's when you know you had max r technology putting out all these satellite images of crazy formations and that it was like, oh, okay, this probably is going to go down. Yeah, no, it it very rarely got media coverage. I'd probably say after Mint 2, after the, you know, the quote-unquote ceasefire goes into effect, I mean, it kind of drops off for the most part. It might get mentioned here and there, but, you know, unless you're, unless you're following the Ukrainian news or maybe social media accounts that are specifically covering this war you're really not hearing much about it but it's it's still going on every day at this point for years again it's not as fluid as it was in 2014 2015 but i mean they're shooting mortars at each other artillery armored vehicles are shooting at each other you know machine guns rifles people are people are dying here and there not in droves as they are today but it's still very much a war that's going on and it was very clear that at some point this was going to get settled somehow, yeah. some way. It was, it was not just going to be ceasefire violations daily until the end of time, and there and there wasn't going to be a ceasefire that held either. At least not not without, you know, unfortunately, more territory changing hands and and a lot more people dying. Yeah, this is definitely <clears throat> the invasion was something was bound to happen. I'll just say that. Yeah, yeah, and at at this point we're getting up into the the real lead up to the invasion in the spring of 2021. You have a, nearly a hundred thousand Russian troops. They begin deploying close to the border with Ukraine, and they're bringing all their equipment. It's like if you're getting ready to go on deployment, you know, or or a pretty big training exercise pre-deployment. They're bringing all their all their equipment, all their weapons, uh, tanks, aircraft, rocket launchers armored vehicles, radars, and everything else they would bring if they were getting deployed to a combat zone. And the world is paying attention to this, but the force mostly leaves after a while, but most of their equipment stays. They took some back, but most of it stayed along the border, and they keep a skeleton force behind to you know maintain that equipment and make sure it's good to go for when they need it. But nothing else really happens until November 2021. And then Russian forces return to those positions that they were at in April. And not only that, but more of them are arriving with more equipment. And Russian units are coming from all over the country. And they're even going to Belarus. They're arriving in Belarus by the thousands for military exercises, as the Russian government says. Of course, now we know that's BS. And it even appeared to be BS at the time. (laughs) <laughs> these guys are coming from everywhere. I mean, these aren't just guys from the the Western military district, which, you know, obviously oversees the border with Ukraine, but they're also mm-hmm. coming from the far north, you know, for example, from the border with, uh, you know, Norway and all the NATO countries up there. They're coming from the far east, you know, the borders of China and North Korea. And by the time the invasion happens, Russia's position more than 85% 
of their battalion tactical groups along the eastern border with Ukraine, Belarus, and Crimea. And for those that don't know what a battalion tactical group is, that's Russia's base fighting and maneuver force, right? That's how their military is really broken up into a, a somewhat somewhat sustainable, semi-sustainable fighting force. Yeah, it was um I mean, <clears throat> like you said, it was it was vastly different because because of the fact that they were building up on three sides of the country. Um and that that not to mention you also had the Black Sea fleet and um other naval ships essentially positioning themselves um where they'd be able to like strike different cities and everything was it was just kind of it was I don't want to say it was obvious but it was it was kind of obvious in a way um I don't want to say obvious it was likely to happen right December January time frame you're looking at being like yeah this is probably going to turn into something yeah and I mean even going back on your your point with the navy they're bringing naval infantry brigades from the pacific and they're bringing them up from the baltics i mean the baltics you got to think those guys russian naval infantry brigades you know some might call them russian marines they are part of you know russia's elite forces they don't they don't just waste those guys or take them away from uh their garrisons for no reason right and if they're pulling them away from the baltic nato countries and other countries that they have to worry about like finland and sweden it's it's for a reason and you got to keep in mind that these maneuvers were unheard of before 2021. I mean, taking 85% of their active duty maneuver forces and putting them in a small area, it's it's unheard of. And it's very, very expensive. Russia's not stupid. You know, they knew once they invaded that they were going to get hit with some pretty hard economic sanctions. Right. And a lot of businesses, foreign businesses that operated in Russia would pull out. Um, it just makes sense, you know, and these maneuvers are very expensive. So it, it wasn't a waste. It, it had a purpose and it was not just military exercises. No, not at all. And I think they ended up even, um, at least for a short amount of time, didn't they like set up a naval blockade somewhere, if I remember correctly? They stopped something. They tried to like stop shipping. They tried to stop. Um, damn, I'm really trying to remember where it was. I don't know. Uh, I forget because I, I don't remember the exact location, but there was just a lot of things going on that, that you know, I think most people realized something was going to happen. But I think still at the end of the day, when they, when they crossed, I think it still took us all back a little bit. Um, because we th we figured it was going to happen, right? And everything pointed to it happening. But it was still kind of a shock to the system. And um, still to this day, it's pretty wild to think about, like, a European war going on. We're so used to there not being a European war, <clears throat> at least in the sense that we know it as. And uh, when they crossed, man, uh, that first day was wild like 4 a.m their time and it was like nine my time just stand up 24 48 hours straight just trying to like just watching this unfold that's why i thought it was funny it is a little off topic but 
someone a couple of people recently were some of them like public officials were like yeah this this war is essentially fake there's like barely any combat footage and i'm like we watched this war happen this is the first this is the first war where you can <laughs> you can borderline watch it minute by minute and there's like so much drone footage I, yeah, I've never seen so much combat footage in my life, and I probably never will. I mean, yeah. <laughs> fucking dudes from Al-Qaeda and the Taliban probably wish they could get out this much footage as oh, it's come out of this yeah. world. It's yeah. insane. Yeah, the Taliban wishes they could have videos of, like, drones dropping grenades on Americans, right? Like, they wish they could have that. But it's uh, <clears throat> it's pretty wild. I'm I'm... I'm Curious to see if they, if there is going to be a kind of, I know they've said like they've, Russia's essentially started a renewed offensive, but I wonder if there's going to be another mass push because they have allegedly hundreds of thousands of guys already in the country. So I wonder if there's just going to be this secondary onslaught push and if they start allocating more air set, uh, excuse me, more air assets to that. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to tell right now. You know, this this offensive that everybody was kind of waiting for, the Russian late winter spring offensive, it looks like it's already began, probably began about a month ago. And it's it's been very underwhelming, to say the least. And it's not clear if they could really, you know, really do anything meaningful with it no but there i've seen some reports recently about them uh potentially entering like the actual city of bakhmut now so we're moving away from uh, a lot of the fighting coming on the outskirts to maybe they're going to make their way into the city. So that will be a, uh, who knows how that's going to go. There's also, uh, are we going like too far off the topic, by the way? I don't know how. No, no, you're good. But there's, um, <clears throat> let me just pull it up real quick. They essentially, my understanding is that you, Ukrainian forces destroyed some sort of like retention ponds in the area. Um, so they're essentially like trying to flood certain areas around, I guess, Bakhmut to try to slow the advancement. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I don't know how that's going to go down and I don't know how that's going to affect the rest of the war. Yeah. I mean, if that's a strategy they could use, they absolutely will use it. You know, we saw that in, uh, in Kiev at least a few times and kind of, Spoiler alert for uh for the phases going forward, but Bakhmut's going on, and uh, Ukraine is eventually going to have to leave that city. It's it's kind of obvious the Russians are not going to stop pushing on it, and they're gaining ground. I mean, literally inch by inch. But you know, it is something. And I've had this conversation with a few people. Um, you know, I was talking about it with John from Defense Bulletin. Um, I don't know if you know him, but yeah, yeah, we were we were talking about Bakhmut, and 
Russia needs to take, they either need to take or encircle and bypass Bakhmut to move on to Kramatorsk and uh, Slavyansk. Those are two cities to the northwest, also in Donetsk. And if they want to take that entire region, they have to take those two cities, right? And they can't just ignore Bakhmut. They either got to encircle it or they have to take the entire city. So Russia needs to need to do something with that. Ukraine, however, they really don't need to fight for it, right? Um, most of the civilians are evacuated. It, you know, just a quick tangent, but it, I still don't even see why they haven't evacuated everybody. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why civilians are still allowed to be in that city, but um, it's not a battle they need to fight. You know, this has been going on for seven months and, some people argue, well, you know, they need to they need to defend that city because they can't give up an inch or, you know, they need to hold it so Russia doesn't push on Slovyansk and Kramatorsk or, you know, areas um, in the opposite direction. Ukraine's defensive lines outside of Bakhmut, especially to the northwest, but really in all directions, are pretty solid. They're dug in, they're well supplied, um, and they're not going to get rolled over so they could withdraw from Bakhmut and, you know, be perfectly fine. They could easily defend the territory outside because their defensive lines are so good. There's really no reason for them to just bleed out their forces in the city. It doesn't make sense. And unfortunately, it's not not something we've only seen here. Um, we specifically saw it with Sviril Donetsk. I was talking about that with John, too. Um, and they did the same thing in Sviril Donetsk. You know, there's a city right next to it called Lysychansk and Russia took both cities, right? I mean, they're literally right, right next to each other. And Lysychansk is up on a little bit of elevation over Sverodonetsk and, you know, Sverodonetsk is, it's farther out, it's farther to the east and the areas to the south and the north of it were already taken by Russia, right? So they were kind of, kind of pinched in between the two. They had a little bit of a salient um, and, you know, unfortunately they just, fought and bled for that city that was for all intents and purposes entirely destroyed for really no reason they could have pulled back to Lysychansk um and really like rain down hell on Sverodonetsk with Ford observers right it was a perfect area for them but they didn't do that they waited until the last minute waited until they were I mean incredibly close from getting encircled and then they pulled out they lost a ton of people for it specifically foreign volunteers. They really utilized the foreign legion in that and didn't have to. Yeah, I'm not sure, you know, what, what the big, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure why they're adamant on Bakhmut. Um, I mean, it's, it's clear why Russia wants Eastern Ukraine, right? They want the lithium salt, um, the wheat. That's where all the resources are. You know, they want that land bridge to Crimea. But I'm not sure, you know, maybe maybe someone knows why, but I'm not sure why why Ukraine is holding on to Bakhmut so much. But I think something that's important for people to remember is, you know, Ukraine's been using their soldiers to defend that area. Russia, up until now, has predominantly just been throwing Wagner conscripts at it. So <clears throat> they're breaking down Ukrainian lines using dudes... They don't even fucking care about. Um, 
and then they're going to follow up with their, you know, proper professional, conventional, and non-conventional forces. So we're starting to see this transition where now Ukrainian units are starting to engage VDV units that are coming in, right? So you're... <laughs> They're, you know, Russia's smart, right? Like they're doing what they've always done in the sense of throwing bodies at the line. Um, but they don't have the numbers they did in the Soviet Union, right? Where you can just throw millions of soldiers out of the line. So what do you do? You empty out your jails and prisons and, you know, you send thousands of these conscripts just dwindling Ukrainian lines, pushing closer and closer until you you know, you weaken the enemy and then you can bring in your actual force you you care about and, you know, steamroll everyone after that. Yeah, I mean, just like you said, um, you know, you got Wagner Group really spearheading this assault. I mean, pretty much up until the past couple of weeks. Again, this thing's been going on for basically seven months at this point. Wagner Group, um, we'll touch on it a, a little bit later as well, but you know, it's a private military company, right? Russian company. The the guy that owns it is good friends with Putin. They've known each other for decades, right? So he has that in. And before the invasion, it was, you know, just a normal private military company. I mean, they contracted dudes, right? Took a lot of veterans from the Russian military, but that was it. But after the invasion, you kind of have this political game, this people trying to buy for influence with Putin, um, really between the high levels of the Russian military and Wagner Group. And Wagner yeah. Group, you know, they want to, again, gain influence, make a name for themselves, and they they want to be seen as a capable force. So they start recruiting people from Russian prison, say, hey, if you fight for us in Ukraine on a six-month contract and you live, you go home, you get a pardon, and that's it. Brand new chance at life. All you got to do is make it through six months, and they recruit you know, at least 40,000 prisoners. They had probably 10,000 um, contractors before before they start doing this and they swell up their numbers and they spearhead Bakhmut um, and really continue to do so until they take so many casualties that it's it's just not feasible. Then they really need support from the VDV specifically. Yeah, if there's... You know, when you you're mentioning the numbers earlier in terms of casualties and all that, and God, God only knows like what's true and what isn't in terms of that. But if there's any casualty estimate that that's been put out by like Western media or intelligence that I believe, it's it's probably the casualty rates of of Wagner Group just getting absolutely chopped up. Um, and and that's not you know that's not necessarily like against them as an organization like you said like but prior to this they were uh i don't want to say reputable in like a good way but they were they were renowned in some sort of degree for their fighting capabilities and like the fact that they did have prior russian veterans and stuff like that um and they had some effectiveness in their campaigns around the world but now they're just mass recruiting out of prisons i mean this is not propaganda this is real like they're really pulling from prisons um and like you said like really giving people these contracts that they know they're not going to survive uh and just like throwing these guys with no experience 
straight into the meat grinder. Um, so if 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 any casualty estimates are are true, it's probably the ones they're saying about Wagner Group. Yeah, no, absolutely. These guys, I mean, these guys are getting thrown into the meat grinder, right? And going back to your point before, while Russia is using Wagner, a majority of them convicts right to spearhead this assault on Bakhmut this like just never ending assault on Bakhmut where people are just dying left and right while Russia is using convicts Ukraine is fighting with their their servicemen um and you know they're fighting with a lot of guys from the foreign legion which for the most part are guys from western militaries with experience right some with combat experience others just with experience serving in the military but um i mean these are not guys that you want to waste right because they already have prior experience again some of them have combat experience they know how to use these western weapon systems that ukraine has been getting in at a rapid pace they don't need extra training they already know how to use these systems these are a valuable resource that you don't want to waste and unfortunately it seems like that's what's been happening yeah i think so i think there's probably going to be an increase in these guys being killed um i have a friend who's there right now not in bakhmut but he's in the region um he works with some people i'll just kind of leave it at that but they uh you know he was talking he's telling me about how some of his friends out there are with like these special ops units and you know like some of these guys are just burnt out um because it's not yeah you're not talking about special ops and gwat time right you're talking about special ops and a conventional war and he says you know some of these guys go out and you're talking about the most well-trained and well-experienced of their military and all that time like guys have been in for decades like fighting through the war in Donbass before all this was going down. And he was like, some of these guys come back and like, they just don't want to do anymore because despite all their time in and their experience and training, like they go out and they're just getting fucking their boys are just getting vaporized. And um, that's just speaks to the brutality of the war, you know, and the brutality of the severity of the killing is just the shelling, the drones, rockets like it's just it's just you know you can't i i wonder like i would be interested to see when all this is done how many people were killed by actual gunfights and then how many people were killed by just artillery just getting fucking waxed yeah i mean this war is is incredibly brutal i mean this is certainly the largest war in europe since 1945 um and one of the largest wars in the world uh since 1945 as well and i i'd say probably the only the only other war i could think of since then that has just been as brutal is probably the iran iraq war in uh in the yeah. 80s if memory serves correct i mean that that went on for seven years about eight years 
Um, and this has only gone on for one. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's probably not going to end anytime soon. No, I don't think so. This is just the beginning. Where do you what like realistically speaking, if you had to if you had to put a number on it, what do you think the casualty rates really are for both sides? God, I mean, I don't I don't know. I could probably see are, are we we're talking about casualties or just killed? Casualties both like killed and wounded. I mean, I could probably, I could probably see a hundred thousand on each side. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking too. That's and that's crazy, right? Like that, like we can't. As Americans, we can't comprehend that. You know, we lost less than what ten thousand total from all the wars in twenty years, and we're one year in here. And realistically, they probably lost a hundred thousand people. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we lost uh, somewhere in the in the eight thousand range. You know, twenty years of the global war on terror. Imagine yeah. losing. Let's just say, imagine losing four times that in one year. Yeah. And to, yeah. to us, to us here in America, really, like the West in general, that's unfathomable. Well, what's really weird is like they're. I I'm not like a certainly not a professional geopolitical expert, but I'm pretty sure Russia is going through generational problems, like in terms of population, and so it's it's really weird that they're just kind of like throwing their youth, in some cases, into this war, like when they're going to have like serious problems in terms of population issues here in a few, in a few years. Uh, I just, I don't, I don't understand that at all. You'd, you'd think they'd want to like preserve their youth. Yeah, they are. It's um, it's a, a problem that most of the developed countries in the world are experiencing, right. Um, population decline, birth rate decline. I mean, look at look at us, for example, if it weren't for immigration, our population would be declining. We do not have a sustainable birth rate. But you know, Russia um, is seems to be in, in especially, uh, I guess, worse off case, if you will, um, their birth rate is declining, and they have and they have people leaving, too. Uh, they they don't really have a lot of people immigrating in, and that was pre-invasion, right? It's an issue they already had. Um, and then you think about post-invasion. Obviously, you have young men dying by the thousands, military-age men who are, you know, also around the age that men have children dying by the thousands, and then you also have thousands, tens of thousands of military-age males leaving the country. And yeah, that's probably never that's coming really back. Good. That's yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. The amount of, the amount of guys that in those early days of the war, they're like, I'm out. Yeah, and I mean, even you know, there's an argument that they're going into Ukraine to kind of fix this generational issue they have, you know. Um, but even the the population that they do gain from taking these territories in Ukraine, it it still won't 
it won't fix the issue. You know, I it wouldn't even be putting a band-aid on it compared to what they've lost in again, people leaving and men being killed in action. Yeah, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Well, we kind of derailed a little bit, but um where'd you want to go in terms of the the phase or phases uh, as it was? Well, uh, you know, you guys have listened to us before and you know we kind of we kind of go off on tangents, but people continue to listen so you guys expect it from us and you know here we are uh going back to the prelude uh going into february of last year on the 15th the russian state duma that's you know their legislator that's one of the chambers of the legislator they ask putin to recognize the independence of luhansk and donetsk which which he does and then on the 18th uh LDNR governments announce civilian evacuations from their regions into Russia, right? You have hundreds of thousands of people fleeing across the border. Uh, Military-aged males stay, though, because the next day they announce general mobilization, which means they just pull people off the street. And, hey, man, guess what? You're getting a uniform and an AK. Wild. Yeah, that's how it is. Yeah, also around this time, you have a series of false flag attacks that, I mean, really just like poorly executed, right? Like easily identifiably like false. Um, but they occur in the Donbass and end it in Russia in a couple places. And that is used to try and give Russia a pretext to invade. And of course, we've seen this plenty of times throughout history. You know, we saw this in 1939. I can't remember the the name of the attack, but there was like a German military outpost on the border with Poland, um, some German soldiers attacked it dressed up as Polish soldiers. And that's how that's how you get the Polish-German war in World War II, right? So it's, it's not something that we haven't seen before. Right. Um, and then after this, Putin, again, recognizes the independence of those two regions. And then he deploys Russian forces to those territories on a quote-unquote peacekeeping mission. At, at the request of those governments. And then on the 23rd, Ukraine begins drafting men aged 18 to 60. And men of those ages are also banned from leaving the country. A, f- a few of them are able to get through, but most of them stay. And then in the early morning hours on the 24th, Putin gives an address. He declares a special military operation in Ukraine. He accuses the government of committing genocide on Russian speakers. He accuses them of being controlled by Nazis. Uh, and he says that Russia will demilitarize and, quote, denazify Ukraine. And before this address even started, about an hour before Russian columns are making their way into Kherson from Crimea, right? They pass the border checkpoints on uh, Russian bombers are getting ready to launch strikes across Ukraine and the invasion's on at this point. Yep, and that first um that first picture, that border guard running from I guess his post, seeing uh the Russian column coming. Wonder where that dude is. Yeah, you know, people have people have tried to find him. I know uh uh Nick Nick Laidlaw, I think is his last name, the guy that runs Battles and Beers. He said he's he's looked everywhere for the guys that man that post and he can't find him. Um and who knows what happened to him? You know, I, I think it was a handful of dudes that were at that post and supposedly they fired a couple of rounds at that Russian column that was coming and then they 
They dipped. Really never yeah. to be heard from again, as far as we know. Um, yeah. But I mean, that was those images coming from there were just so iconic. And I remember seeing them on Twitter, you know, as it first happened. I mean, the first the first day or the first days of this invasion, I mean, it people are like live tweeting the war, you know, myself included. It's it's something that's never been seen before in history, at least not to this scale. It was just so weird and surreal to see. But um I mean you see that photo and it's like I I got this photo on one screen, right, and Putin's address on the other as he's speaking, this is happening. And you see that and you're like fuck yeah this is it before before the words special military operation even come out of his mouth like this is it it's on russian voices are going over their uh their bomber net which i mean for some reason they haven't secured like anybody in the world could listen to it it's very odd but um they're like incredibly active and yeah yeah, I forget I forget where it was, but it was some somewhere on Telegram, I think. The day before there were all these rumors about, you know, 4 a.m. Like everyone everyone kept saying 4 a.m. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, well, that's 9 p.m. my time. Like I'll be up. Fuck it. I'll just pay attention. And sure as shit, I think it was 904 when that picture came up of the border guard and I looked at my phone, I saw that and I said, yep, game time. And then for the next, I don't even know, eight hours. I think I, I stayed up doom scrolling like different feeds, um, pulling shit from like everywhere. People sending me things. And there's, we watched every, it was like every city got hit every single city got hit and just bombs everywhere like rock uh somewhere there was like grad rockets just like shelling the shit out of places it was really wild seeing that like really wild yeah it was man and um you know it was it was known that putin was going to give this address at four o'clock you know it was pre-recorded Right, but that's when it was released on all the state media right. channels. Um, and I think to most people, at least for me, I'll, I guess I'll speak for myself. It was, it was already clear to me before that the invasion was going to happen. But it's like, man, there's only so many things that could come from this address, right? He he declares the independence of these two regions, right? He accuses Ukraine of terrorist attacks. They had already been accused of genocide before this address even happened. And then he sends in, you know, mechanized infantry brigades into these regions as quote unquote peacekeepers. The line of contact is lighting up. I mean, ceasefire violations like you had never seen before. And it's like, man, this this can only go so many ways. Nothing nothing good comes out of this address. It's not going to be, you know what? Ukraine's all right. <laughs> we'll, yeah. just, we'll just keep our peacekeepers here and mo- won't mess with each other. That's not going to happen. Um, no. And I remember yeah. those. I remember those false flags you talked about before. There is um. Oh man, I re- there was there was one where there was like a BMP in a field that was just on fire. Yeah. 
uh, they tried saying, like, I guess this lone Ukrainian BMP tried, you know, assaulting Russia. Is this, like, goofy? Oh, man, what was the other one? They came across, like, body. Oh, man, I'm, like, it's, like, on the tip of my tongue. There's some sort of, um, some sort of, like, little shack. I think Atlas News posted... Uh, oh, it was like yeah. a little shack that they like blew up and they're like yeah it was a like sbu radio station or something and like it was like <laughs> it was like the most like goofy like, it was obvious bullshit but you know i mean the whole world knew it was going to be bullshit it's not like uh I, I to be honest i don't even know i don't even know why you know, President Putin and like the, the the Kremlin bother lying and like making this stuff up as if any anybody in the world is gonna believe it is is legitimate. You know, it's like you might as well just fucking do it, not even pretend that it's for some sort of legitimate reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, I mean, why on, you, on the other hand, have... it's kind of like these things were so low effort. It's like, why not? You know, I'll yeah. get a few. I'll get a few people to believe me. You know. I so, guess it, why it just not seems just shoot like... up like a a Russian version of like a Volkswagen van? I remember there was one of those on like the freeway, yeah. and they said like two people got killed, no blood though, but they shot the hell out of this van. It's like oh, it's right. so it's so low effort. I why not? Right, uh, right. And there was one. Um, what was that other one that was filmed at night? And it showed some Russian dudes that apparently got like injured. Uh from i guess like ukrainian fire and they had like a bandage on but he wasn't bleeding it was like the weirdest it's like shit like high schoolers make yeah i was like damn man you know all the all the you know cold war movies that make the kgb out to be this you know wild capable intelligence source like this is the best the best false flag you can come up with yeah dude they're a bunch of they're a bunch of goobs man i mean <laughs> Looking back at the, I talked about that that German false flag in 1939. You know, I'm pretty sure they actually killed people in that one. Like German soldiers, yeah. it's probably probably like SS dudes, um, killed other German soldiers. You know, just to make it look legit. Yeah, and and with these, it just seems like they just took like a abandoned BMT or BMP out to a field and like lit it on fire and like yeah this thing just like ran our line like yeah okay yeah yeah and going into going into the first phase of this the initial invasion you have a massive invasion force pushing uh pushing north or I'm sorry as I was uh pushing south from Belarus they head towards uh Kiev you actually head towards uh, Chernobyl first, and they use that as a staging area. Probably not the best idea, but it's close mm -hmm. enough to the Belarusian border. Uh, right. They use that as a staging area. Then they push on Kiev later, and that has the purpose of taking the capital city and deposing the Ukrainian government, right? that That is the main effort, right? And you have other prongs as well. You have a large force coming up from Crimea in the south, and we talked about that a little bit. They had two clear objectives capturing Kherson, and then uh, pushing west to facilitate assaults on Odessa. And the other objective is capture Melitopol, that is in the east, and they push east to Mariupol in order to create a land bridge between Crimea and the Donbass. 
You also have offensives in Luhansk and Donetsk with combined LDNR forces and uh, Russian forces as well. You have prongs pushing on Chernihiv Oblast in the north, and that's to capture the region and later link up with the main effort to assault Kiev if they hadn't already captured it. And then lastly, you have prongs moving on Sumy and Kharkiv in the northeast, and that's to capture the regions and really tie down as many Ukrainian units as they can to keep them from moving west to defend the capital city. And this phase really ends with Russian forces withdrawing from northern Ukraine in early April, most notably Kiev Oblast, of course. Uh, they failed to take the capital, and small Ukrainian counterattacks really seize the initiative towards the end, and then they also withdraw from Chernihiv and Sumy. And I think they also withdrew from Kharkiv during that time, didn't they? Uh, I know there was there were some Ukrainian counterattacks uh, roughly the same time that were able to take more of the the more northern areas of Kharkiv all the way up to the border. But they the Russians still did hold a, a good part of uh, the oblast going into the other phases. Right. Yeah, I think there's still there's still uh, definitely active shelling there. I don't know if there's like direct action. Yeah, there is. You still you still have a cross border shelling. I mean, even to this day in Sumy, Kharkiv, um, maybe Chernihiv a, a little bit. But I mean, yeah, they kind of they got like you know drones. Actually, I think they just had a drone attack today. Now that I think about it, but drones, you know, rockets, missiles, kind of lobbed at them here and there. Okay, I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. Uh, keep in mind that was just part one. We do have uh, another part coming out, at least one more part coming. If, knowing me in Northern Provisions, I wouldn't be surprised if it's uh, multiple other parts. But for those of you that asked us questions, we will save those questions for uh, for the end, uh, whichever part that may be. But we will get to your questions. And I want to thank you all for listening to this episode again. Of course, it means a lot to me. You all have given us a lot of support over the past year. You could find this podcast on your favorite apps at Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, and Pocket Cast. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, we're there. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That's all one word. You could find us on Telegram at Analyze Educate. It's the and symbol, not and spelled out. Also, please consider supporting us again at patreon.com slash analyze educate or at ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. We will see you around with part two.